Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Happy Mama Movement podcast. I'm Amy Taylor-Kabaz, mama of three, author, and creator of Mama Rising. This podcast is dedicated to conversations with the world's leading experts on how we can support and value motherhood differently and mamas themselves dedicated to changing their own definition of motherhood all through the lens of the world-changing understanding of matrescence. Thank you for being here and thank you for being a part of the movement. Welcome back, mamas. On the surface, you may think this week's episode won't be relevant to you. The conversation that you're about to hear is with a woman who decided to be a surrogate to two men and gave birth to their son, Baker. She's also a mama to two children herself. And the reason why I really wanted Anna's story on our podcast is because Motherhood looks different for everybody. Matrescence is an experience of the transformation of becoming a mother and giving birth, whether that is as a surrogate, as an adopted mother, through IVF, or in heterosexual couples. I want our conversations on this podcast to explore and understand all experiences of matrescence, all experiences show us that in many ways we are the same. In many ways, the questions we ask, the experiences we go through, and as you'll hear from Anna's story, the experiences of the body, of the mind, of the hormones, and of the process are so similar. Anna Mackay is, as I said, a surrogate mama. She is also a surrogacy advocate and is part of the Surrogacy Australia Support Service. I had tears in our conversation. It helped me understand what it means to give birth, to bring a child into the world. It also made me, to be honest, want to be a surrogate. Anna tells such a divine story about the role she has played in this little boy's life and his two dads. But also, she brings insights into the process of becoming a mama. As she shares in this interview, babies are gestated in the body and the mind. Meaning, if you became a parent and somebody else carried that child, you are gestating that baby in your mind at the same time. Just think about that for a moment. Becoming a parent is not just a physical experience. It's also something that happens in our mind, in our soul, in our identity. And that is a conversation I think that is relevant to all of us. 
I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode and conversation with Anna. So please let both of us know after you listen. But for now, as always, enjoy. Anna, I am so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for saying yes and coming on the podcast and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, have this conversation too. As I said in the introduction, this is both an incredibly exciting conversation to look at motherhood, pregnancy, birth and surrogacy in a different way. But also, I really want to learn more about this. I want this to be both um, a really interesting and exciting insight into matrescence and also a way for so many of us to understand more about how surrogacy works and also the experience of being a surrogate. So could you just start by telling us your path to being the surrogate for Baker? Sure. So I'm 38 years old um, in Adelaide, married with two kids, and they're currently um, five and seven. And I guess, why did I want to be a surrogate? I enjoyed being pregnant and giving birth. That's one of the main reasons I list. And I wanted the chance to do that again, but not raise any more little humans. <laughs> I so get that. I so yes. get that. <laughs> Thank you for your honesty. <laughs> yeah, that's it too was fine for us. So I've also been an egg donor three times. So I was happy to help other people have children. But yes, two was fine for us. But I... Uh, did a hypnobirthing course in my second pregnancy and we had a planned home water hypnobirth and within half an hour of having birthed my son Ewan I'm like yeah I did that I want to do that again (laughs) it was so empowering and I remember I'd always thought about being a surrogate but I think that had confirmed it for me having that really empowering birth and we did get that with Baker too we had another planned home water hypnobirth with midwives from our local public hospital so that was that was amazing to to get that as well and I, I remember actually wanting to be a surrogate since I was 14. I remember saying to friends and probably not really understanding the enormity of it at the time that if you guys can't have kids I'll have them for you so then when we'd had our two kids I suppose that that idea came bubbling through again and sort of went pursuing it and looking around how does that work in Australia. So yes, I suppose this idea of wanting to do something big and give back, I felt that it was within my capacity to do that. Some people go, oh, didn't you fear that you'd, you know, struggle handing over the baby? No, surrogates don't have that struggle or fear. We just believe it's something that we can do. And so can I just flesh out that process a little more? What about your partner and what about your two children? What Mm. was the, because yes, you are the one to house and carry this baby. It is your body that has experienced this, but pregnancy is not experienced in a vacuum. This is something that your children need to understand. Your partner needs to understand your extended family. What, What was all of that like? Yeah, that's a great question. And they really are the unsung heroes of surrogacy, particularly the partners of surrogates. So my husband, Glenn, said, you know, well, as long as you do your research and you don't rush in, okay. And so I certainly did that. So I started investigating surrogacy when Ewan was six months old. So let's say my kids were one and three and Emily was three. But then from the time I started researching, it was actually four years till I birthed as a surrogate. So it was quite a long process. We did our research and attended catch-ups and 
found as much research as we could and really it then came down to Facebook groups to access surrogacy in Australia. There's a main Facebook group called the Australian Surrogacy Community. It's funny, everybody else gets excited about surrogacy, particularly with them when you meet the intended parents um, and their extended family. Everybody's full of joy and excitement. But it's often the surrogate's family that are quite cautious because they're sort of like, well, pregnancy can be risky. Um, Things can go wrong. And you're putting yourself through this not to grow your own family, but so other people can have a child and grow their family. And you're putting your husband and your kids potentially at risk for this. And I think that is a harsh reality, but it is a reality that we all do need to sit with. We shouldn't just brush that aside. It is... It's an exciting thing to do, but pregnancy and birth do bring risks and you have to be aware of them and to be okay with them, I guess, to still move forward. And I suppose we all do that in different things in life, be it you're doing an extreme sport like mountain climbing or something like that. You weigh up the risks and you push forward despite the risks. Um, Maybe that's bravery. I'm not sure. Or slight stupidity. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) one um but yes it is certainly a a project that surrogates want to do and people come along for the ride but likewise I suppose if your partner was deciding to do marathon running or something like that they would then have many sessions that takes them away from the family but you do this to support each other and so Mm -hmm. Glenn was aware that this is something that I wanted to do so he supported me in that but ultimately yes they become a part of it because the intended parents we abbreviate that to the IPs they become like family. If they weren't already known to you beforehand, they become family. And so your kids and your partner do get involved and they learn to be friends and love the people too. And so how did you find the IPs? I'll share a little bit of of data with you. I gathered um, there's also a Facebook group for surrogates only and there's about 150 or 180 women in that at any one time. And I I am a maths teacher is one of my other jobs. And so I collected data from the ladies in that group for four years. So they shared some basic information about their journeys. We we say journey a lot (laughs) in the world of surrogacy. And that, you know, were they carrying for people they previously knew? So it was a, a new relationship or an existing relationship. Were they carrying for a straight couple or a gay couple or sometimes a single parent IP? You know, did they live locally or long distance to each other? And there's no central database for how many surrogate births are in Australia each year. It's about 100, but it's growing. And again, by my data gathering, matching up against that, I would say 80% of surrogate teams previously knew each other. So that might be family or it could be a friend connection or a friend of a friend. So those surrogates, you know, probably heard of their IP story and that their struggle to become parents or they were gay dads or gay dads in the making and went, yeah, I could do that for you. And then you get a bunch of crazies. I mean, I think we're all a little bit crazy to be surrogates, but that go, I really want to do this, but there's nobody in my circle that needs me. And I did ask people, you know, well, <laughs> do you need a surrogate? Sort of. I mean, the women that um, you knew were going through IVF, I then asked them, did they know of other people? So I did try, but then I went, well, I still want to do this. So I'm going to go out of my way and then find people to do it for. And so then I wasn't on Facebook at the time and I had to rejoin because I'd found a forum, which we don't run anymore, called Fertility Connections. And it seemed like everybody was talking about the ASC, Australian Surrogacy Community. I'm like, I'm going to have to rejoin Facebook to find the community 
the village, as we talk about it quite a lot. Yes, so I found um, my village. Uh, there's also state-based surrogacy groups too, which are smaller, still talk about surrogacy, and then we arrange catch-ups, dinners or park catch-ups um, within our own state. Um, sometimes there's Zoom catch-ups too. But yes, the big main group is in there. And so it is a bit like dating. So we call it surro dating. And the IPs and surrogates go in there and do their introduction post. Yeah, and that's one way of meeting. But it is tricky because how do you know who you're getting? Um, how do you know who you're meeting and what's their background check? So that's how I found IPs. I was in, When I first joined, there was nobody in Adelaide, no IPs that were going to be the quite the right fit for me. And, and I didn't want to do an interstate journey. But then I started looking and was initially dating two guys <laughs> who were in Melbourne. I love it. I know that's what we say. I get to date two men and I have a husband. <laughs> so what a life. Yes. And so after six months of dating, that didn't work out. They actually called it off with me, which is great. Looking back, it was very hard at the time, but they realized I wasn't quite the right fit for them or for their family long-term and perhaps also the logistics of an interstate arrangement. And I was working full-time at the time. And I think they were conscious of the impact that was going to have on my young family. So I think they called off um, for some of those reasons. We're still kept in touch as friends. Uh, yeah, sometimes as surrogates, we get quite blinkered and going, I'm going to do this project. I found IPs. That's it. Let's let's do this thing. So then had some soul searching and then Matt and Brendan joined the community. I think it was 2018. And then we struck up a conversation and met in person and and then started some sorrow dating. Wow. Can you just for everyone listening Explain a little bit, just quickly, around the rules of surrogacy, the law of surrogacy in Australia. We have a lot of international listeners as well. I don't expect you to go through the surrogacy law all over the world, but maybe just point out what it's like in Australia, just to make sure we clarify how different it is around the world as well. Sure. In a nutshell, there's two types of surrogacy. There's commercial surrogacy and altruistic surrogacy. Australia does altruistic so we don't do commercial. That's the one that is illegal. So a surrogate doesn't get paid a large sum of money to be a surrogate. Canada and the UK and New Zealand, they also do altruistic surrogacy. And some Aussies can engage with those countries, but they have agencies to help make it happen. Um, it's still going to cost a lot of money in Australia to do because there's counselling and legals and usually engaging with an IVF clinic. Yeah, so then altruistic surrogacy means we get all of our costs covered pregnancy-related costs and all of the appointments and things like that. So that's how it works in Australia. And it also goes by the laws of the state that the IPs live in, not the surrogate. So that even if the surrogate's having some medical tests or she has gives birth in her state, what happens at the end is we transfer parentage. So the surrogates, as some of the classic questions that people have at the beginning of surrogacy is, the surrogate's name and her partner's name do go on the first birth certificate, which means we are the legal parents of the child. Some people are fearful of that at the beginning, both the surrogate and the IP. So it's, that means the IPs think, okay, well, that means the surrogate can legally keep the baby. Yes, she can. And this is why it all comes down to trust. Um, even though you have two lawyers involved beforehand and you draw up an agreement, it's actually not enforceable. But it also means from a surrogate's point of view, they could walk away and leave us with the child legally then we're stuck with the child right so so much trust so you you don't want to be launching into bed with people having a baby once you've first met them you need to develop trust with them that 
everybody's going to do what they say they do. And trust is only built over time. You can't just say, yes, yes, I'll do the right thing. You really need to get to know people and, and know that that's how it works. And then so she's on the first birth certificate and then you apply for a parentage order. Um, once you've got that first birth certificate, you go back to your first lawyer and the IPs are, you know, doing all of this. And then the lawyer uh, applies to court, to the family court. You all have a day in court at about six months post-birth, somewhere between, say, three and nine months post-birth. And we often all go. Um, and it's a really quite a joyful thing. Then that gives permission for a new birth certificate to be drawn up, which has parent one and parent two. So you can have two dads on your birth certificate now. And then that means they're the legal guardians of the child. So when they apply to childcare and school and they have a birth certificate, whereas I think some of the other countries overseas, particularly in the past when overseas surrogacy was open in India and Thailand, I don't think you ever got a birth certificate with both parents' names on it, which can then create issues down the track if you, you don't have that document. So that's the benefit of doing it in Australia. You do get that legal guarantee, but it takes time and you've got to trust that everyone's going to do the right thing and, and sign the paperwork. Wow. It's an amazing overview. And the more I speak to you, the more courageous I see these decisions as not just for you, but for the IPs, as you call them as well. What an incredible journey, as you call it, for all of you to go through. I really would love to dive in for a minute. I wonder, you know what matrescence is. You, you know how motherhood, becoming a mother and, and being a mother changes us. And you've had that experience with your two children. When you were going into surrogacy, how did you think it would be different? And was it? I know you said, you know, there was never any question about you not handing the baby over at the end. But um, what did you think it would be for you, just you? I know you wanted to do it, but how did you think it would change you or what the experience would mean to you once it was completed? Yeah. In all honesty, I don't think, I mean, I can perhaps only speak for myself, not for all surrogates. I don't know if we think that deeply about it at the beginning. I think we're excited mm. by this thing that we want to do and we perhaps don't appreciate the enormity at the beginning of what it is we're going to do, particularly the fourth trimester in those three months post-birth. And I am somebody that got yes. slammed with postnatal depression this time around, um, had it with my first child, probably had it a bit more under control with my second, but got hit really hard after Saribub was born. So, yes, yeah, some of those, the enormity of what the changes that your body's going to go through hormonally too and the impact that that's going to have. I do remember because it was some time from when I first started investigating, I do remember one particular conversation I was having with a friend and thinking about I've come into this with my goals of being a surrogate. The, the IPs come into it with their goal of wanting a baby. But what does the baby want? What's in the best interest of this child? And who's the, the voice for this child? And it was quite overwhelming and thinking, well, we need to be the voice for this child and that we each have our, our wants for this child to be here but how can we make this transition as smooth for this child as possible because usually the person that births the child is the person that is the primary carer but that's not the case in surrogacy and so how can we make that transition for the baby smooth so it's not a band-aid quick out from the surrogate off to the parents 
Whereas, you know, I might have been the only thing, well, the main thing that child knew, my noises, my smells, my children's noises. I was the thing that was used to. I think we owed it to that child and every child in surrogacy. We need to keep the children at the forefront of what we're all doing here as adults. That, to, yeah, to make that transition smooth onto the parents. And so it's quite important that you're near each other for that first week for the surrogate, for her body as well, but and for the child's needs and for the parents to bond and to to see through part of that that enormous part of the journey. So, yeah, at the beginning, I don't think I fully appreciated, but as I went along and spent time, I think it's really important to speak to others who are going through it and learn from their experience, the, the elders, of, you know, those who have gone before us, and then appreciating that, I mean, we could delve into so many different areas here, but one of the psychologists, the main ones who is now experienced in surrogacy talks about, Katrina Hales, her name, she's based in Sydney, is head heart hormones. And as I was looking up, you know, sort of the meaning of matrescence this morning again, you know, it's all of those changes that you go through. How would you, just in case anyone from the surrogacy community is listening and they haven't heard of matrescence, how is it physiological? What changes would, is it defined as? It's the complete transformation of a woman as she gives birth or becomes a mother. And it involves all areas of her life. There is not one area of her life that is not untouched. So when I teach it and talk about it, we talk about the changes culturally in your community, in your body, in your brain, in your finances, in your passions, in your relationships, every single thing. When you go through this, it's like a portal. When you come out the other side, you are never the same person. Um, which is why I really wanted to talk to you about that surrogacy process because I believe there has been another matrescence for you in that process of surrogacy. And sure, your body may return back to, you know, back to not being that mother of that child anymore, but all those other areas have changed again you know, the way you view the world, the way your community views you and your community and you feel about them, what you want to do in this world, all of that has transformed through that experience. And that's you would agree with that, right? Absolutely. And as we were briefly talking about beforehand, as I was thinking about that, that perhaps in some ways the matrescence as well, and that word is in it, it comes from like you have adolescence, haven't you? And that's a, a hormonal shift that people would understand if matrescence is the one into motherhood. Perhaps it's also into parenthood that matrescence traditionally perhaps might be the, the birthing person is also the primary carer. But in surrogacy, perhaps some of those life changes that happen happen in two people, that the primary carer. And some of your listeners might be um, a mother and they've birthed their, their first child, but they perhaps are not able to have a second without the need of a surrogate. How do you, you know, prepare for a child? There was another psychologist called um, Sarah Jane Duray, and she's in Melbourne. And she is a psychologist and also specialises in surrogacy as well now. And she's a mum herself through surrogacy twice. And she mentions um, that babies are gestated in the body as well as the mind. So I think that's pretty powerful. I love that. I love that. And I have women in my community who are adoptive mothers in my training who are starting to talk about matrescence in adoptive mothers, this is an area of research we don't know enough about. You know, at the moment it's still very anecdotal and this is what's so exciting about this is that we have this opportunity to really study the process of becoming a parent, a carer, a mother, a father, 
And of course, I love the way that you've, she's described, that psychologist has described this gestation of both in the body and in the mind, because it does acknowledge that becoming a parent or even just pregnancy and birthing is never just a physical experience. It's an identity experience. It's a mind experience. It's a community experience. That's why I asked about, but what about your husband and your kids and your family? Because these things don't happen only to you and only to your mm. body. And in a traditional yes. hetero relationship, the father is never the one that carries and births a child, yet they go through changes, mm-hmm. you know, in their lifestyle as well. And so I remember right. Brendan, he's the primary carer, the main stay-at-home dad. One thing he was worried about was, am I going to bond with my child because I didn't birth them? And another fear of his was, yes, you might have a monitor, like a video or a sound monitor, but if my baby's crying in the middle of the night, am I going to sleep through it? Am I going to hear it? Is it the amygdala or something that that grows as you become the primary carer? And it turns out that can grow even if you didn't birth the child, that you can still develop a heightened sense of awareness for a little person that is in need of you. And once he found that out, that put him more at ease going, yes, my body will learn to be connected to this person. I will be attached to them even if I didn't birth them. That's right. That's right. And research is showing that, you know, as I've said a number of times in my training and in my podcast, we need people out there researching patrescence or whatever other term we want to name it, because this isn't just a female experience. But research shows that the father or the non-birthing parent, if they are at home connected and really bonding in those first few months with that child, their brain will change too. But the problem is in our current culture is that the non-birthing parent or the non-primary caregiver gets maybe a week off work and then goes back. And so the changes in that parent's brain is often a lot slower because they're not in this little cocoon of allowing those massive changes to happen within their body let alone then all of the big questions that come like, how will I parent? Who am I now? What does this mean? All of those bigger Mm. things. So, Anna, we could talk for days and I would really love, you know, in my training, in my mummarizing training, which is training women to speak and teach about matrescence, perhaps we could have like a masterclass Mm. in there one day, really, if anybody wants to focus on this. But if I could just sink back down into your experience When you said that fourth trimester period and how important that is and almost how not unprepared but uh, how much you hadn't thought into that time and then you did experience postnatal depression, what did that fourth trimester look like? Do surrogates feed the baby? Is there a conversation around when does that happen or how? And what was your experience of that? And how do you think we should be doing oh, it? Oh, again, you got another hour? Right. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, great questions. Um, let me just sidetrack first and just mention one story about the bond, which then connects to the feeding as well. So <clears throat> every team will work that out differently. Again, by my data gathering, about one third of surrogates don't provide any colostrum or milk. So they they stop their, their milk coming in. About a third might do it for a short period of time. They might either hand express some colostrum beforehand or maybe do some initial feeds or if people are in a hospital 
for those few days that you might be in hospital together, she might do that. And then some of us, maybe another third, do um, establish a milk supply and do express. So I expressed milk for nine weeks, I think I got to. So that was, again, something I wanted to do for my own body in recovery and, and for Baker to give him, you know, a good start in life. One thing that we did was, was sort of one of my um, deals, so to speak, is that even though we live in Adelaide and we're only 35 minutes apart, I learned from another team of a technique that they did and the boys had an Airbnb five minutes from my house um, for a week post-birth. Katrina talks about this head-heart hormones, that this adjustment that our bodies are going through, that your bodies often don't get the memo that this baby um, where it is. I wonder if there are some parallels to perhaps women who have stillbirths because from my body's point of view, the baby's not with me. Where is it? It's searching for it. Whereas my head and my heart know, no, no, it's loved. Baker's loved and cared for. He's in a house. He's being fed. I know that. But then when you catch up and see the baby and get have a cuddle, often you can feel this relaxation kick in we go oh that's the baby it's safe it's fine and so we can um, help our bodies in that way by having frequent cuddles um, and having sort of an open door policy that but, but not just that you can get cuddles at any time but scheduling them in is really important so every team will be different but it was for me it was important to establish a milk supply and to do that I decided that I wanted to do a lot of direct feeding in the first three days to help bring that in for the colostrums. I did a hand express some colostrum as well, which I hadn't done before. I was super proud of the liquid gold there. And so that meant the dads could give him some of those early feeds from syringes, but I still did a lot of feed. So you think about the logistics of that. If you want to do nearly every feed for the first few days, you have to be a doorway apart. And they did, they stayed at our house for the first two nights. And so, but we got, you know, that comfortable with each other that we were fine with that. So they were a doorway apart. Um, And then at the Airbnb, I went and stayed with them for a night. And again, logistics here, it was the end of term three, <laughs> going into school holidays. So Glenn, you know, managing the house here with the kids. And then once my milk supply was in, I would see them a few times a day. So when he would wake up in the morning, they'd, they'd give me a call. They're like, he's ready for a feed. I'm like, I'll be there in five minutes. So we combined like milk delivery and Uber and we called me Booba. <laughs> I became Auntie Booba. So, <laughs> yes. And particularly then when I was expressing milk later on and freezing it and bringing it down, it was Booba delivery. So, <laughs> what an amazing yeah. experience. So, yeah, so we did, wow. did that. And so then I would, for the week that they were near us, I would, whenever we were together and he needed a feed, and if everyone still felt comfortable with that, we'd just pop him on for a feed. And then they'd give him a bottle in between, which was um, either express breast milk. Obviously, he moved to formula at some point as well. And then fed him once a day in the next week. And then, you know, we weaned off. I think I did his last direct feed when he was maybe four weeks old. But it was amazing that this kid could have four days in between having a feed from the breast and have bottles and he just latched back on. So smart, these little little ones. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I, I had a moment where you know, again, this bonding, how would he go? And there was um, one time when I was up at the Airbnb, maybe it was about four or five days old and I'd fed him and the dads were doing things, you know, either chatting to me or getting on with, you know, tidying up while they had a moment because they didn't have to feed him. I was feeding him. So I got my moment to have time and talk to him and cuddles and look at him. Then I'd try and burp him. And I remember this one time 
I couldn't get the burp out of him or maybe I had and he was still fussy. And this is the beauty of a surrogate going, I get all the best bits and I can just hand them back going, oh, fussy baby, not my problem. I've had my two, it's your turn now. And I remember Brennan came over and he's the tall, broad one and he's the way he talked to him, he's like, come on, little man, what's the problem? Come on, let's stop mucking about. And he had him up on his shoulder and within seconds Baker settled in his arms. And I remember sitting there watching that going, he's going to be fine. It was really important for me to see that that little baby, he, that Baker had worked out, Brendan's my primary carer. He's the one I need to attach to. I'm back in his arms. I'm okay. And so it felt like Baker had three parents for a while. And why not? Who says, you know, you have to have two or why not have one? Why not have three? And so I think that's the beauty of a, a Saru ship, as we call it. That's, you know, our term in our world. It's a combo of a friendship and a relationship that there's many people coming together to create this life. We say, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. And in the case of surrogacy, it takes a village to make a child. Wow. Oh, I had tears listening to that story. And I think it's such a beauty, beautiful story unto itself but also for all of the different variations of becoming a parent. It's such a beautiful story to say the baby knows who its main carer is. The baby can sense it. It it happens. And to just reassure everybody who may be thinking of different ways of becoming a parent that this is, this is what happens. It was a beautiful story. Thank you. Thank you. And I think that's important and for then me to talk to the boys about that because then that was important for them to hear that their child was bonding with them, that somebody else had witnessed it and to help them as parents go, am I going to bond with this child? Yes, I am. So, yeah, I think that's an important thing for everybody to hear from both sides of the, you know, the surrogate side and the IP side there. So, so of course, you're riding the high post-birth. You know, you've got all those hormones Day three, big cry about a particular thing that happened, but it wasn't connected to the boys, funnily enough. It was something something else that happened. But even just being aware that you know that's going to happen and having surrogates to check in with you too was really powerful. Having other women who were going through their surrogacy at similar times, either you know a few weeks ahead of you or a few weeks behind you, and you can pass that on and ride that, that crazy time together. Yeah, so for some people, the fourth trimester, those first three months post-birth, I think other people's bodies regulate hormones better than others and just that that acceptance of it's not my fault. If my body does not regulate hormones as well as somebody else, that's not my fault. I've had a bit of a blog, but I've did a big reflection piece on this. It's 10 pages long. It's called surrogacysafari.com if anybody wants to look it up. I actually read it out to a camera. It took 40 minutes and that was the most cathartic thing about nine months post-birth when I was through it. May I ask what it was that you needed to say? Because actually we do a lot of processes around that type of thing in my programs of really reflecting on what's happened and speaking it out loud and moving through it. And so I wonder on reflection, what, what did that process give you? Yeah, it was fascinating. It was just a it was just a spur of the moment. I'm like, should I do this? Yeah. And it was the best thing. I think in, in hindsight, saying my shames out loud meant they couldn't own me anymore. Yes. Oh, I feel like I want you to say that again. <laughs> saying my shames out loud meant they couldn't yeah. own me anymore. Wow. 
and that they were the dark corners, the things I didn't want to tell people about, how I was on antidepressants. So Baker was born end of September. I was on antidepressants. I was drinking. I Christmas Eve in the corner of my kitchen, my kids were finally in bed. Glenn wasn't here because he was singing with Christmas and I was pulling at my hair and I just wanted my brain to stop. I wanted it to be gone. I just wanted to sleep and not wake up because then I didn't have to be in my head anymore. And once you put that out on paper and say it out loud, you're like, well, everybody, there you go. God, it doesn't get any worse than that. <laughs> I mean, to get to that point of being able to say that takes time, you know, and I needed medical help. I needed regular psych help. I had a counsellor and a psychologist. I give me all the helps I can get. Um, so continue regular psych sessions with Katrina Hale, you know, my counsellor there. Just, yeah, not feeling so alone in these things. Um yeah, saying that out loud was part of my healing. I had to get it out. It takes a while to get to that point, though, doesn't it? And it's that journaling that can help. Yeah, that, I think that was where it all started. Thank you so much for your honesty and for sharing that with all of us. I think uh, whether you're a surrogate or not, I think the reminder that we all have these dark places that we want to hide and when we bring them into the light, they change, but it takes time to get there. Do you think not only... You know, for anyone who's listening to this, you know, maybe you've Googled becoming a surrogate and have found this conversation. I hope so. I hope this can land at the right place at the right time for everybody. In hindsight, is there any changes you would have made to support you post, well, actually throughout this whole experience, knowing that carrying a baby and birthing it and handing it over it's still an extreme change within yourself. You are still never going to be the same person again. That's what matrescence teaches us. So what do you think, if anything, uh, you would do differently or that you would like to have known? Mm. Well, that's funny because then in my other work that I do, I think I am doing that. So I, I run uh, SAS, which stands for Surrogacy Australia's Support Service, and it came from, you know, the beginning of, are all the resources in the community only on Facebook? How can people access surrogacy in Australia if you don't want to be on Facebook at all or much? Surely we must be able to gather together the collective wisdom of those that have gone before us. So we have a mentor program and a buddy program. So every surrogate and IP gets buddied up. And that's really important, I think, that you can meet with somebody one-on-one, not just on an online community. I mean, that's valuable too for getting some support and, and knowing that you're connected. But having a person you can connect to one-on-one to help you feel less alone in this as the surrogate and the IPs, somebody to answer all of your beginner questions so that you don't feel like, you know, you're silly for asking them. No, we've all been beginners. We all started at some point and all had those questions. So I think it's really important to surround ourselves in surrogacy with people who have done it before, um, who are reliable resources, you know, and want to help. It's also really important to Um, have a village of people who are not in your surrogacy team but understand it. So you need to be talking to people about surrogacy. So my work family at my high school that I work at, because they watch me be pregnant every day, um, and I would still go in in term four even though I wasn't pregnant, and I could cry there in the staff room, and they got it. They understood why that it was my body's changes. So that is one thing in surrogacy that both the surrogate and the primary caregiver are entitled to parental leave. 
so the paid parental leave, and if their workplaces have maternity or paternity leave, you get that too. So that is nice as a surrogate that you do get paid leave if you meet the work test. I mean, I guess if you're a stay-at-home person, you don't, but your IPs would, would buffer that out to help create some sort of leave for you because your body is recovering from this. So, yeah, so it's important to talk to people about surrogacy because you need an army of supporters around you that understand that when you're having your wobbles post-birth that they don't think, oh, Anna's upset. That means she wants to keep the baby. She really wants the baby back. No, 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 no. I don't want the baby back. Thank you, no, no. <laughs> but it's okay to understand that the tears or the hormone fluctuations, it's your body adjusting yes. to not having that baby yes. and accepting in your your head and, and your heart where, where the baby is. But... It's also really important, we say, for surrogates to have a project post-birth. There are resources out there for this whole fourth trimester, which, again, in SAS, we've gathered together all these resources and these documents for teams to talk about so that you can plan for. The surrogacy project ends, so it's very busy when you're getting to know each other or going through the counselling and the legals and the IVF. It's very busy. And then that ends. And like whenever perhaps a marathon ends or a musical or a grand final, a sporting project ends, you have you feel a bit deflated and you sort of come down from that going, oh, what's next? And sometimes you can confuse that sadness with the IPs. Is it their fault? Am I sad and angry at them? No, they're off, you know, with their child and they're doing what we all wanted. They've got their child and they're, they're becoming parents and living life. Oh, but I kind of miss them. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and then you go, we're trying to work out what you're missing. You're not often missing the baby because I never imagined the baby with me. I, I miss my friends and spending so much time with them. So my vision was not with the baby in my arms. It was the baby over there in their arms. That was our vision. So, yeah, having people that you can talk about in that fourth trimester for surrogates have a project, something that you're going to do in that leave, might be planning a family holiday, you know, COVID restrictions pending, of course, um, some travel or building something so that you can feel like you did something with your leave and you can find yourself again, find what's your next project going to be in life that you've just shared your body. You know, it could be some physical recovery to get your body, but slowly, even here I am, you know, 12 months post-birth here and still haven't quite lost all the baby weight. But, you know, that's not unreasonable, is it? But the surrogates, it's very hard to go when you go out to the shops and you've got a a body that looks like you've had a baby, but you have no baby in your arms to show for it. You're very conscious that you should recover much faster because you don't have a baby to go, oh, so it's complex. It is so <laughs> complex. You have done such a wonderful job navigating it all for us. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you. Um, I have to say there's a part of me that wants to be a surrogate now because I'm like, what an amazing thing yes. to do. <laughs> I don't think my body would be able to do it. It struggled with my third no. pregnancy, let alone having another one. Yes, because I'll just say on that that you, you get older every time you have, so they do get harder. But do you know what? And it doesn't mean that everybody has to be a surrogate, but the, I believe we changed the world one conversation at a time and so by having this opportunity to have this conversation with you you don't have to be a surrogate but it means more people are talking about surrogacy it means that it's becoming more normal in Australia and so that these babies that are born from surrogacy when they go to school this is a bit one of my passions and my vision that they have a family that looks like their family okay you might have a two parents live in the same house you might have two loving parents who live in different houses and sometimes you're with one parent sometimes you're with another you might have a single or grandparents or two dads so I would love Baker when he goes to school and he goes to a friend's house he's got a friend who's got two dads 
And so by the more we talk about surrogacy and get more people doing it with the support, then I think, yeah, for these children born from surrogacy, it helps to normalise that experience for them too. And for us that are going through it as surrogates and IPs, more people just understand about surrogacy and come with questions that are, you know, a little bit more educated and can support you through it and not without judgment. Oh, absolutely. Well, I hold that vision with you. That would be a wonderful world where all of these different ways of becoming a parent and being a parent are accepted and that our kids know the most important thing is that they're loved. Amazing. In the show notes, we're going to include all of the references and all of the details that you shared in this beautiful interview. Anna, I am incredibly grateful and I know that this conversation will not only help those who do want to become a surrogate or an IP, um, but also just all of us better understand this. Thank you so much for explaining it so beautifully. Thank you, Amy. And having followed your work for a few years, it's it's such an honour to be here and, and to speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you. I feel very privileged to be able to explore motherhood, parenthood and matrescence in so many different ways on this podcast with you. I want this to be an inclusive conversation that values parenthood differently in our world. As Anna beautifully described, the more conversations we can have about the many and beautiful ways of bringing children into this world, the more those children will feel supported in their classrooms They'll look around and see others just like them. And that's what we're here for. We're not only here to explore and expand our understanding of matrescence, but also change the future for our kids. You can find out more if you're in Australia about Surrogacy Australia by going to surrogacyaustralia.org. And of course, In other places in the world, please Google surrogacy in your part of the world so you can find out more. And as always, share this podcast far and wide. This is a conversation we should all be having. Thank you for being a part of this conversation, Mama. We change the way mothers are valued and seen in our society and our world by bringing these conversations to light and spreading the whispers of matrescence. And so I ask you to be a part of this movement now. Speak to others around you about matrescence, about your experience of motherhood. Let's bring it to light together. To find out more about matrescence, go to amytaylorkabaz.com forward slash matrescence and receive your free ebook, The Matrescence Map, so you can understand it even deeper. Thank you for being a part of this. Until next week, Satna.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.